If you have your copy of God's Word, turn to Ephesians chapter number 2. Ephesians chapter number 2 as we continue in our study of this book of the Bible. A series entitled, Gospel Truths Lead to Gospel Living. Gospel Truths Lead to Gospel Living. We have finished chapter 1 in the first 10 verses of chapter 2. And today we'll look at verses 11 through verses 22 of chapter 2. A message I'm entitling, Humanity's Unifying Factor. Humanity's Unifying Factor. I think you'd agree with me, church, that we live in a world of rivalries. With computers, it's PC versus Mac. With soft drinks, it's Coke versus Pepsi. With trucks, it's Ford versus Chevy versus Dodge versus Toyota. With sports, it's Sooners versus Longhorns. And we know who is the chief Indian of that uh, rivalry, Boomer Sooner. In baseball, it's Yankees versus Red Sox. The NFL, it's the Dallas Cowboys versus no one cares about them anymore anyway. You got, somebody's got to be scared of you in order for you to have a rival. So that expired in the late 90s. There are more serious rivalries in our society than sports and trucks and pop. In our society, there are political rivalries. There are racial rivalries. There are religious rivalries. There are social rivalries. And the danger of these rivalries is that they can turn very hostile and very divisive quickly. In fact, we're watching right now in the good United States of America how we've become incredibly divided due to some of these rivalries. More divided perhaps than ever before. Which makes me ask the question, how do we deal with that as Christians? How do we ensure that that we don't let the, the, the rivalries of our country cause us to be sinfully divisive people? How do we navigate our way through these rivalries in our society as a church? I mean, how do we keep these rivalries in our country from causing division in our place of worship right here at Fellowship? In the text before us today, we're going to learn about a, a rivalry that was real for the church of Ephesus. It was a rivalry in this church that had caused divisions well before this church was established. It was between two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul's going to teach them through this text, and he's certainly going to teach us that diversity doesn't mean there has to be division in the church. And that's because there is one unifying factor that has the power to bring all of humanity together, whether you be Jew or Gentile. White, brown, or black, Republican, or Democrat, poor, or rich. This unifying factor has the power to turn enemies into friends and to turn rivals into allies. And we're going to learn about it. Beginning in verse 11 and 12, Paul describes this rivalry. Verse 11 says, Wherefore remember that ye being in the time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let me sum up the rivalry between the Jew and the Gentiles. I would say that it was a religious rivalry. 
It was a cultural rivalry and it was a racial rivalry. It was religious in the sense that the Gentiles did not know the God of Israel. Paul says they were uncircumcised, which meant that that was an outward indication that they were separated from a covenant relationship with God as opposed to the circumcised Jew. It was cultural in the sense that only the Jews could boast, or, or rather, only the Jews had rituals and feasts and ceremonies that distinguished them from the Gentile nations. It was racial in the sense that only the Jews could boast of being in the Messianic line, the, having the very blood of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Some may think, why did God do it this way? Why did God, who's supposed to be a God of love and unity for all, why did he choose one people group to be his special people? It almost seems as though God is the one that created this division. Well, there's no arguing that beginning with Abraham, God did sovereignly choose the Jews to be his chosen people and to receive his special blessings, but also to be a channel of those blessings to the rest of the world. Follow this church. From the beginning, it was God's plan that through Abraham and his descendants, the Jews, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Israel was called by God to be the vessel through which the knowledge of God would be spread to all people groups. Unfortunately, though, Israel never fulfilled that calling. They wanted to condemn the Gentiles instead of witness to the Gentiles. God went so far as to make Israel distinct through the Old Testament ceremonial laws. Have you read some of those in your Bible? Chances are you skipped those in your Bible reading because they're boring and you didn't understand them. God put those in there so that they would be a distinct people and their distinctness would be a light to the Gentile worlds. But instead of using the law as a tool for their witness, they perverted the law into a source of pride and isolation and self-glory. And anybody unlike them was not welcome with them. Where we get the New Testament version of that is called Pharisees and Sadducees. So it's not that God created a separate people in order to cause division. He separated a people and chose a people with the purpose of bringing the gospel to all people. But the Jews messed it up. And the rivalry only intensified through the generations. It turned into hostility. Check this out. When, it, when a Jew entered Palestine, he would often shake the dust off his sandals and off his clothing in order to not contaminate the Holy Land with Gentile dirt. Some Jewish women Refused to help a non-Jewish woman give birth because to do so would make them responsible for bringing another despised Gentile into the world. If a young Jewish man or a young Jewish woman would marry a Gentile, their families would literally hold a funeral service. Symbolizing the death of their child as far as religion and race and family were concerned. That's wild. That's hostile. And yet that is the two groups of people that find themselves assembling on the Lord's Day in Ephesus in the same church. That tells me that, that the chances of division in this church were very high. And the same is true today. You know why? Any church that preaches a whosoever gospel, which we do, by the way, is going to attract and welcome diversity. Because whosoever means everyone. 
But while diversity is a good thing and pleasing to the Lord within the church, here's what we got to be careful about. Not to let that diversity ruin our unity. For instance, there will be and should be, by the way, racial diversity in our church. And every race, listen, this isn't a bad thing, it's a reality. Every race has their own cultural biases. Dress biases, food biases, uh, communication biases. Every race has their own cultural traditions. They celebrate holidays and birthdays their own way. Every race has their own cultural differences. But it's not just diversity in terms of race that would assemble in Fellowship Baptist Church. If, if we preach a whosoever gospel, it means there are going to be people that come in here with political diversity. And right now, political differences are being highlighted on every news channel and every social media platform. It's an election year, if you haven't heard. And it's an important election year. It's a controversial election year. And politics is being talked about daily within our community and in our own church. And if you didn't know, not everybody agrees. There's certainly economic diversity in the church when you preach a whosoever gospel. Because that means that the gospel is for the white collar and the blue collar. It means that there are going to be some that assemble in church that are on the wealthy end of the side economically, median income and low income because the gospel doesn't measure you by your paycheck. There's social diversity in the church, meaning there are going to be all kinds of, of family backgrounds. There's going to be spiritual backgrounds. There's going to be religious backgrounds. There's going to be introverted people and extroverted people. There are going to be some that are prominent in our community and some that nobody knows who they are and they like it that way. And diversity in the church, hear me, is a good thing. But we cannot let it cause division. Our country, as much as I, I love it, has let our diversity cause division. Our culture has bragged for centuries about being the country that welcomes diversity. But as soon as that diversity disagrees with them, they condemn it. It shouldn't be that way in the church of the living God. We should be the example of unity in spite of diversity. And to be ultra clear, hear this. I'm not talking about diversity in the sense of things that are obviously condemned in Scripture. Hear that. I'm not talking about a tolerance of sin. We don't tolerate sin because the Bible doesn't tolerate sin. And if you have a preacher that, that has the guts and the, and the Holy Spirit boldness to stand up and preach, thus saith the Lord, don't call him intolerant. He's preaching, thus saith the Lord. I'm not talking about diversity in clear matters of Scripture. We don't, we don't differentiate in Fellowship Baptist Church on what marriage is. And what the, what the Bible is, it's our sole authority for life and practice. And why the church exists, to reach the lost. Okay, there are a lot of things that there is no, it's not up for discussion. It's not up for debate. We don't vote on it. But there are political, social, economic, and racial diversities that should never separate us. We can't be divided over those things. We must be all about diversity in this place as we preach the gospel to every creature. But we also must be vigilant to not let that diversity divide us. Which begs the question, how do we accomplish that? No, really, if we're going to preach a whosoever gospel... And there are going to be different people that assemble every Sunday in this place. How do we not fight? If I'm going to be singing along somebody that I vote different from. If I'm going to be kneeling at the same altar of somebody with different color skin and traditions and biases than me. How do we keep that from coming in between us? 
And if we are going to be saturated by a country that is fighting like crazy, how do we ensure that in this place there's unity? Paul says verse 13 takes care of that for you. Here's the heart of the text. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, I love this, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Here it is. Humanity's unifying factor is the cross. The Gentiles were afar off. That's who Paul talked about. They didn't know the Messiah. The Jews weren't eager about sharing the Messiah with them. They were of the world, not of God. Yet Jesus died on the cross and the cross became the bridge through which both the Jew and the Gentile could draw near to God and draw near to each other without fighting about it. This means Christ's death has a vertical and horizontal purpose. His death has a vertical purpose in that it reconciles us to God, but it has a horizontal purpose in that it reconciles us to each other. And that's what Paul explains in verse 14 and 15, exactly how this happened. Look at verse 14. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now, these are not verses that that would jump off the page in clarity to most of us. What is he speaking of when he says the middle wall of partition? Well, he's talking about a literal wall in that day in the Jewish temple that separated. Check this out. The court of the Gentiles with the court of the Jews. It, It would be like you coming into Fellowship Baptist Church today. And in that center aisle was a wall that went all the way up to the ceiling that you couldn't see through or hear through. You could not get through and and we were separating races or we were separating Republican and Democrat or wealthy and poor, popular, not popular. That's exactly what the Jewish temple was like. And they were so serious about it. The Jews were that they had this inscription on that wall. Listen closely. No foreigner that's talking about the Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. If you were a Gentile and you crossed to the Jewish court of the temple, you were inviting death into your life. Now this wall, this literal wall, represented a literal division between these people groups. But Paul actually isn't talking about how Christ's death broke down the literal wall. You know how I know that? Because if you study that wall in the temple was erected years after Christ died on the cross. So what was the wall that he broke down between these people groups and between all the people groups that would ever fill this world? Well, it was the law, the Torah, the Jewish law. Look at verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that's a hostility, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Study with me. The greatest barrier between the Jew and the Gentile was the ceremonial law. Not the Ten Commandments, not the moral law. The ceremonial law set up for the Jewish people. That's the feast, that's the sacrifices, that's the laws of uncleanliness and purification. Hey, before the cross, these groups could not eat together because of restricted diets and required washings. Before the cross, they couldn't worship together because of that wall. But now because of the cross, a Jew could eat with a Gentile. And a Gentile could could, could worship and serve God right alongside a Jew. Because when Jesus died on the cross, catch this, he fulfilled the law. 
He abolished all the rules and regulations that divided these groups for so long. It's incredible. It reminds me of a story I read about what happened between a few soldiers in World War II. They're, of course, serving their country. They lost one of their comrades in duty. And they decided that they were going to bury their comrade in the nearest cemetery. So they went to the nearest cemetery. They met a priest at the gate. And he found out that that cemetery was a Catholic cemetery. And the priest said, if he wasn't Catholic, if the soldier wasn't Catholic, he can't be buried here. And so they walked away. And they said the next best thing they could think of is we'll bury him right outside the fence of the cemetery. So they dug a grave and buried him right outside the fence. They slept through the night. They came back to pay their last respects before moving on. And they couldn't locate the grave anywhere. And so they went and found the priest. They asked the priest, well, where's the grave? Did you move the grave? And the priest answered in this way, I quote, the first part of the night I stayed awake feeling sorry for what I told you. The second part of the night I spent moving the fence. When Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross, he moved the fence. He made it possible for enemies to become friends and rivals to become allies. He made it possible for the church of the living God to experience unity in spite of diversity. Here's the point. Here's the point. Where man divides, the cross unites. What divides men over racial differences? The cross unites because the Bible said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Did you know that the cross, the blood of Jesus, is what brings together every tongue and every tribe and every nation? Think about it. How is it possible for a Caucasian and an African American and an Hispanic and an Asian to come to the same place and worship the same God and read from the same Bible and sing the same songs and kneel at the same altar and still get along despite their cultural biases and traditions and difference? I'll tell you how it's possible. The cross makes it possible. Where division over politics divides men, the cross unites Earth calling all Christians. The mission of the church is not Republican or Democratic. The mission of the church is to preach the message of the cross. Our main objective as a church is not to strive to put the right person in office. Our main objective of the church is to strive together for the gospel. That doesn't mean you can't have a political opinion and take a political stand and cast a political vote. You can and you should. But my point is that the cross has made it possible for you to worship and serve alongside somebody that thinks and votes differently than you. Where man divides over economic and social issues, the cross unites. Did you know you don't have to matter outside of this place to matter inside of this place? Poor or not, important or not, you have a place in God's family. The cross has made it possible for the rich to worship with the poor and the influential to worship with the common man and the socially elite to worship with the social outcast. And here's why. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Absolutely. That truth right there is at the heart of this text. Where man divides, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ Unites. And then Paul spends the remaining part of the text telling us in what areas the cross has united us. And he begins by saying the cross unites us in race. Look at verse 15. 
Look at the very last phrase of it. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. That word man is used to describe uh, humanity in general, the race of mankind. And here's what Paul is saying. Through the cross, through the cross Christ has actually created a new race. And has nothing to do with skin color. Has nothing to do with what part of the world you were born in. Has nothing to do with your parents or your ancestors. This race has everything to do with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. And if you've been saved, you are part of what I'll call today the Christian race. It's not that Jews stopped being Jews. It's not that Gentiles stopped being Gentiles. They kept their nationality. They kept their individuality. God created them that way. But when they got saved, they joined a spiritual race with those saved by the grace of God. Now listen closely to this. Because when we address the race problem in America, we cannot make it about skin color. At least entirely or primarily. Because that's not the real problem. As one man put it, it's not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. In fact, I heard a black man on social media describe the way some are dealing with this race problem like this. He said, if I got into a terrible car accident where I broke my neck, broke both legs, punctured my lung, cracked my head, then had a scratch on my arm, the paramedic would not get to the scene and treat the scratch. The paramedic would treat the real issue first. He went on to say that we are missing the real issue when we address the race problem in America. We're trying to treat the scratch of sin without treating the bigger issue of sin. And I say amen to that. At the heart of every issue that divides us is the heart. So many in America have yet to come to Christ and they are not part of this new man. The new race of Christians, they're apart from God. Like the Gentiles, they are of the world. That's where the real division lies. Which leads me to the next thing we're united in because it's the answer to that. The cross unites us in message. If the real problem is a sin problem and the real division is a result of many people not being part of the Christian race, what's the cure for that? I'll tell you what the cure for that is. It's the gospel message of peace. And that's our job to preach it to him. Look at verse 17. Talk about Jesus came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. Listen, this is the only message that we can all truly agree on. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Him. If you're a true child of God, you believe that message is true. And that's the message we can all say Him into. It's the message we all have to preach boldly. That's why at Fellowship Baptist Church, we're so passionate about what we call here faith promise missions get. Giving, excuse me. Because we understand that in liberal Kansas, we can't all leave here and go to Europe and go to China and go to Mexico and other parts of the world. We can saturate our community and the surrounding communities with the gospel that we preach, but we can't go there. But we can give on top of our tithes. We can give a missions offering to allow other men and women who surrender to the mission field to go to those places and preach the gospel to those places. That's why you give missions. By your offering, you are preaching the gospel of peace. 
It's why that we've already started uh, three churches, one in Christ Church, New Zealand, and one in Oro Valley, Arizona, and one in Scottsdale, Arizona, and Lord willing, in a couple of years, we'll send Mike and Shelby to start another church somewhere in the United States of America, because we believe that, that the need is greater than liberal Kansas. It's greater than Fellowship Baptist Church. People in the world need to hear the gospel of peace, and we must be the preachers. It's the message that unites us. And may I just stop and say, if the loudest message that you're preaching is not the gospel message, then you're doing it wrong. If every solution you offer to the problem in our world has something to do with government or something to do with politics, you are only treating the scratch. Because the ultimate solution, forgive my cliche, will not be found in the White House. It'll be found in God's house. The solution will not be found written in the United States Constitution. It'll be found written in the Holy Word of God. And that's what we preach the loudest. Christians are right now, many Christians are louder about mask than the gospel. Unbelievable. And they think they're right. It's the worst thing. You can have a political view. You can have a stand on all of those issues. But if it's louder than the gospel message... I struggle when somebody is louder about not wearing a mask or wearing a mask. And, and the last time they told somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ, well, they can't even remember it. They can't remember the last time they showed somebody from the Bible how they could be saved. But they know you ought not to wear a mask. And they're not going to tell me to wear a mask. Have I gone into meddling? You okay out there? That's the church for you in 2020. That's, that's, that's where diversity has led to division because too many Christians are louder about things other than the gospel. And it's crazy to me. Now, you want to know my opinion about masks? You can take me out to lunch this next week and I'll tell you. All you got to do is ask. It's not that I don't have a spine. It's not that I don't have an opinion about government. It's not that I don't have an opinion about issues in America. I'm very passionate about those issues. I just hope to God that on social media and otherwise, you're going to hear more about the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ and the gospel that saves all sinners more than you're going to hear whether or not I think you should wear a mask. Amen. Amen. Woo, that wasn't in my notes, but I like it. <laughs> we have to keep doing our part to preach the unified gospel. The cross unites us, listen, church, in access. Look at verse 18. For though, for through him, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. This is incredible. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, when you get saved and come to Christ by way of the cross, you are granted full and equal access to the Father. That means you can pray to him for anything from anywhere, at any time, with anyone. When it comes to access to God, there are no special privileges. The pastor's not granted special access. The bishop's not granted special access. Hey, the priest is not granted special access. The poor man gets the same access as the rich man. The new believer gets the same access as the mature believer. You can pray in English and God understands. You can pray in Vietnamese and God understands. You can pray in Spanish and God understands. You can speak all three languages of those at the same time and God doesn't get confused. The cross unites an access to God. Teenager, you have as much access as this preacher does today. 
The second grader up there that is saved by the grace of God, the third grader that is saved by the grace of God has as much access as the person in here who's been saved for 50 years. The blood of Christ made that possible. And then he gives us one more in verse 19 through 22. And I want to read these verses. It's a, these are incredible. He uses three analogies. Watch here. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the spirit. One more, the cross unites us in community. Paul uses three analogies, citizenship, the family or the household and the temple to illustrate that he can bring diverse people together to serve him and worship him in unity. Because the terms he, he used, the family, the household, that shows us that those saved by the blood of Christ are not meant to be merely acquaintances who, who put up with each other at church two hours a week, go their separate ways and come back and do the same thing the next Sunday. Family members are supposed to do life together, not just church together. And then he uses the temple as an analogy. Well, what's that all about? Well, we don't have a temple today. You're exactly right. But we have the church of the living God. We assemble in a local church every week. And this is where God's presence dwells. And I'm not talking about in a building. I'm talking about God's presence dwells in every individual believer through the spirit of God. And when, when we assemble, we, we, we assemble in the presence of God because every one of us carries God in us. And he makes the point, watch this. He makes the point that a temple is built one stone at a time. Of course, God is God. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The word of God is the foundation. And the people of God are those stones that, that build the temple. And we know that in the church, Jesus is the rock. He's the cornerstone. We understand that the word of God is our sole authority. So it's the foundation of everything we do. But the church also takes community. It takes human beings. It takes people. And every stone that is built in the church is different. Some sing and some preach. Some greet at the door and some keep us secure and safe while we worship. Some watch children in the nurseries and others serve teenagers on Wednesday night. Some people serve coffee and some people run sound and media. And people are different, but God takes all these different stones, shapes and sizes and personalities and backgrounds and political views and racial views and all these things. And he fits them together. He says he, he, he frames them. He fitly frames them together to form his community, his body, his local church. What I'm trying to say is if God has put you in this church, he puts you in here on purpose for a purpose. You're a stone and every stone can be different, but work for the same exact purpose and that is striving together for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and everything we say or do is done to bring him honor and him glory yeah man I'm thankful that on any given Sunday I can walk in this place and I can see diversity I can feel diversity I can hear diversity not as much as I would like it sometimes but I'm pleased to see different races and different nationalities and different personalities and different spiritual maturity levels. At the same time, I'm equally pleased to come and worship in this place on a weekly basis and sense a unity so strong that only the cross can take credit for it. Only the blood of Jesus can bring men and women, boys and girls 
that are so different from one another and assemble them together in this place to worship him in unity. Only the cross gets credit for that. And here's my message to you. If the cross has united us, then it's up to us to preserve and protect that unity. So we must not let racial, political, economic, or social differences create this invisible wall or barrier in our church that the cross has already obliterated. We must not divide what the cross has already united. We can be different from another and we should allow for that. But at the end of the day, would you hear me? We are one race, the Christian race. We are one body, the local church. We preach one message, the gospel message. And we have access, equal access to the one true God. Lord, help us to show this world what it looks like to be diverse yet unified. If you aren't saved in here today, if you aren't part of the Christian race, I want to invite you to be part of the Christian race today. The cross has made it possible for you to get saved no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're going to have an invitation. I would invite you if you're lost to come talk to me personally. I'll be right here. I'll show you or lead you to somebody that can show you how to get saved. On Friday, we was able to lead two people to Christ in a matter of two hours. Two people that, that had been here to hear these Ephesians gospel messages the last several weeks and God had been working in their heart. Sarah Tedford has been coming with the Christies for quite some time. She came into my office on Friday afternoon, a scheduled appointment. And after about a 30 minute conversation, she she realized with tears in her eyes and a broken heart, I'm not part of the Christian race. I've always thought I felt it. I've always thought I'd lived it. I, I, I've always thought that it was a possibility. But now I understand the gospel clear enough to understand I'm lost and I want to get saved. And I'm thankful the gospel has no age restrictions. It saved Miss Tefford right where she was. And we're going to baptize her in a couple weeks. I went to lunch with a men, one of the men in our church and a friend he's been witnessing to by the name of Dustin Lukens. Drives a tow truck in this town. And we sat down and the second time I shared the gospel with Dustin. Of course, it's over Mexican food because that's my food bias. Not even Mexican, but I love your food. <laughs> Particularly your chips and salsa. Bless you for that. Bless your ancestors. Who, who decided to chop up a bunch of vegetables and put it in tomato sauce? That is a great idea. Amen. amen. Whoa, Brother Rick woke up from the service. He's been saying amen all morning. I promise you that. Shared the gospel with Dustin. We left. I thought I would just come back to the church while we were separating our ways in the parking lot. He said, hey, pastor, I'm ready. I said, so what do you mean you're ready? I want to get saved. Let's go back to my office. No, let's do it right here. So right there in the parking lot of El Amigo Chavez. He became part of the Christian race. And I would love for this day to be the day that you become part of the Christian race. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Would you stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.